We've been studying the book of 1 Peter. We're going to stay in that. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, I'll be there in just a second. So, uh, so you guys know my wife and I, we have four kids, and they're getting older. And if you guys, for those of you who have older kids, you're going to know what I mean by this. But here's the cool thing that we're watching. They're becoming not just my kid but they're becoming their own person and their own right, right? They have their own interests, their own passions. It's very cool to see. So if you know my son Jacob, then you know he has one and only one passion, and that is baseball. There's some pictures coming up behind me, Jacob-approved pictures. Um, just, I got to caveat that. That shows you just how long he's been playing. If he's not playing baseball, he's watching it. He's just started listening to MLB radio. I mean, like this guy, all he does is baseball. Um, this past season, we played 45 games, 45 games, and that's in addition to two practices a week, and that's why we never saw anybody for a couple of months. Um, but I think if you were to ask Jacob, he'd go, yeah, that was okay. I still had a couple of nights a week where I wasn't playing baseball, so mom, dad, next year we got to shoot a little higher. Um, he loves it. Um, 2020 baseball season was a tid different. Right before the season started, COVID hit, the county went on lockdown, and that essentially meant all youth sports were canceled. And so uh, Jacob's baseball coaches, and really, honestly, a lot of the youth sports coaches, uh, they, they found a loophole. They said, well, we're just going to move all the t- games and tournaments just outside the county um, lines, and we're just going to keep going like nothing's changed. And that put my wife and I in a weird situation, and to be honest, it was one of the more stressful things we had to deal with. On the one hand, um, all the other parents signed on this plan. Jacob was a pitcher. They had a pretty slim roster, and so they were counting on him to play. But on the other hand, uh, Pastor Mike had just shared with us a few weeks ago that we are called to submit to our governing authorities. And so where does this loophole fit in that plan? And, and, I, and, and in this room, I, I, we may not all agree on the right path here, but I know we can agree that we are called to, sub, to, to follow the convictions the Spirit gives us. Amen. And so that's what my wife and I did. After a lot of prayer, uh, we called the coach and we said, listen, we're going to follow the county rules no matter where we play. And that was not a popular decision. Um, um, Our family went through a lot of suffering because of that stance. First of all, Jacob suffered the most. The the games kept going and Jacob missed most of the season. Um, But I I got right in the crosshairs of these coaches. Man, they were counting on him to play. They were frustrated. They didn't understand why we were deciding what we were doing. And they were angry. And through a course of a lot of conversations, they said a lot of things to me. And and, and my wife wife didn't escape this. We had the same kind of questions we had to answer from the parents. And and I wasn't asking to be in this opportunity. I didn't like, it's not like I woke up one morning last year and go, man, I'm looking for some fresh drama in my life. But nonetheless, I found myself in the middle of the situation, and as it played out, here's what I saw. I started to see that there was opportunity in the midst of this suffering. There was opportunity for good. First of all, my wife and I got to demonstrate to our kids what it means um, to live out our faith, to follow our convictions in the midst of the culture that we live in. That is an important lesson for our kids. But also, um, I got to witness to these coaches on more than one occasion. They didn't understand why we had decided what we did. They kept sending me all these articles about COVID and and how it doesn't affect kids and how it affects kids differently and blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, it's not about that. 
It's not about that. I believe in Jesus. I believe I'm called to follow this word, and this is what I'm convicted to do. And I I had many times I got a chance to share my faith with them, and my prayer has always been that that planted seeds. And, and my wife and I got to do the same thing with some of the parents. And, and listen, that, that's just that's one example. Um, there are many people in this room who have suffered from their faith, some smaller than that, some much bigger than that. Um, the Bible tells us to expect suffering. Um, but this morning, Peter's going to show us that, that how we view suffering, how we respond to suffering, man, it, it matters. It, if we believe that God is sovereign, and we do, then we need to see that there is a purpose in our suffering because it brings us opportunity to be a witness for the Lord. The authenticity of our faith is made all the more real in those times of suffering to those around us who watch us. And so our our main point this morning is simply this, how I witness determines the effectiveness of my witness. How I witness so let's jump in. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 13. Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Our first point this morning is to see that my witness is effective when my hope in the Lord is greater than my fear. So we've been studying First Peter, and in our study over the last few weeks, Peter's been giving us a lot of practical guidelines on how to live in a fallen world, right? He's been saying, be holy in all your conduct, submit to your governing authorities, submit to your earthly masters, have right relationships in your marriage. And last week, we learned to be peacemakers, to bless those around us. And Peter summarizes all that in this one verse where he says, to be zealous for what is good. And, and, and what does that mean to be zealous? We don't use that word a lot in our culture today. But to be zealous, it, it means to have a wholehearted devotion to a singular purpose. It, it's not just an occasional desire. It's an all-consuming desire. And we're supposed to be zealous for what is good. And that just means to follow, obey the Lord, know and apply his word. And, and why are we zealous for what is good? Because we've been transformed by Christ, right? Our, our singular passion for him is evidence of a reborn life. And so Peter says, if we are zealous for what is good, who can harm us? And I think there's a couple of different ways we can read that verse. Um, first of all, listen, biblical morality often lines up with government rules, right? The Bible says things like, um, don't murder, don't cheat, don't steal, don't lie. If we're zealous for what is good, then that often means we're going to be a good citizen in our country. We're not going to be persecuted or get in trouble with our authorities, right? Generally, but not always. Remember, Peter's writing to people who are under the, the, the reign of Nero, and so, so they're going to hear Peter say, who can harm us? And they're going to go, um, Nero? Nero can harm us, Peter? Did you forget that? So I think Peter has a, has a deeper meaning. He's reminding his readers of this, that no matter what opportunities may come at you, they cannot take away our eternity with the Lord. 
Even if the ultimate penalty for following the Lord is death in this world, if we are sealed with Christ forever, then who can harm us? And the answer to Peter's question is, no one. No one can harm us. Peter goes on, though, and he says, listen, even though no one can ultimately harm you, you still may suffer in this world. And he says, if you are zealous for doing good, if you're, ri- if you're zealous for righteousness' sake, and you suffer, he says, you will be blessed. And, and I, I actually like the way the NIV says this, if you have it. It says, if you suffer for doing good, you are blessed. It's this idea of, suffer, of blessing within the midst of suffering. And then all of us say, what? What, Peter? No. And when I had all these coaches saying all these things to me, I promise you not once did I say, yes, what a blessing. Say more things to me. No. I often thought, why is this happening to me? It's Little League Baseball. But Peter says it is a blessing when we suffer. And here's what I think he means by that. To be blessed in suffering means to be fully satisfied, no matter the circumstances. When things are going great, I'm satisfied. When things are not going great, I'm satisfied. Because I believe God has a purpose for good in everything. Because I believe nothing can ultimately harm me. Nothing can separate me from the Lord ever. And that, Peter calls, is our hope. Suffering builds our faith. It builds our dependence on him. It grows our relationship with him. And of course, that's a blessing. But even still, we can read this and we can say, yep, I totally agree with that. I got it. Suffering can be a blessing. But when we get there, sometimes we don't think that way, right? In our flesh, this is a hard thing to view. Sometimes we avoid suffering. Sometimes we fear suffering. And Peter knows that. And so he's going to give us a couple of verses here to explain and to show how we um, view suffering, how we take away that fear of suffering. First, he tells us to replace that fear of suffering with a desire to honor Christ. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. This word translated as holy is the exact same word that's translated as hallowed in the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So, so to honor, the, honor Christ, it just means to, to revere him, to worship him, to put him first. Our overwhelming desire as believers in Christ, our focus should be to do good, to glorify the Lord, and then trust the Lord to keep his promises, and that puts temporary suffering in the right perspective. And, and do you guys catch that this is coming from Peter? Peter's the one that's saying, listen, choose Christ, honor Christ over the fear of any suffering. And it wasn't that long ago that he failed spectacularly in the same realm. When Jesus was being beaten and and insulted and tortured and persecuted, three times people came to Peter and said, you're with him, right? And every time he's like, nah, I, I don't know him. Peter chose the fear of man, the fear of suffering over honoring Christ. So this is evidence of the power of the Spirit to transform a life. That later in his life, Peter's saying, no, it's the opposite. We need to choose Christ. That is the better way. We choose Christ over any fear of suffering that may come from it. 
So replace your fear of suffering with a desire to honor Christ. And next he says, suffering brings an opportunity to witness. Listen, we don't have a corner on the market of suffering, right? Um, Believers, we live in a fallen world. Believers, non-believers, we all suffer in different ways. But Peter says, our hope in the Lord should be so vastly different from the rest of the world. It should be so starkly different that it brings interest. It brings questions from those around us that are like, how can you have this attitude in the midst of all this pain? How we suffer can be a living example of the power of the gospel that people see in us. And and catch this, Peter says this opportunity to witness, it's not a passive one. It's not like we're just waiting for something to happen. He says, always be prepared. It's like, it's like if you guys ever seen like the horse races or watch it on TV or been there or whatever, and like right before they're about to fire the gun, what are the horses doing? Are they sitting back, still chewing their breakfast, looking around? No. They're, 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 they're ready, they're, they're on the tips of their toes or hooves or whatever they have, and they're like right at the gate, and as soon as that gun fires, they take off. And that's what it means to always be prepared. We have to be ready. And, and that starts with prayer. We pray for opportunity to witness in those times. We pray for open doors to share our faith, and when, those eye, when our eyes are open to those doors, we seize it. Our our readiness with which we tell others about Jesus is evidence that he is Lord of our lives. And so Peter says to always be prepared to give a defense of our hope. And so what does he mean by that? What's a defense of our hope? And some people get intimidated by this. They say, does that mean that I have to be ready to articulate every single nuance of my faith and any possible question that could come at me? Okay, well, it doesn't not mean that. That's why we study the word, right? We studied on Sundays. We studied in, on Wednesday, uh, my small group's Wednesday. In small group nights, we study it so we can learn for, to, to glorify the Lord and to answer those questions. But here's what it means way more than that. To give a defense of your hope, it means your testimony. It, it means be able to explain the gospel clearly and how it's been made real to you. Your, your testimony is simply, here's who I was. Here's what happened. Here's the gospel, and here's who I am now. And and may we practice it. It's a skill like anything else, right? We practice giving our testimony so that we are ready. That's why we do it a lot in small groups. We practice that skill. So, so, So replace your fear of suffering with your desire to honor Christ and see an opportunity to witness. So if you guys, you guys know me, I don't really watch a whole lot of sports. It's not really my big thing. I, I definitely like watching my kids play sports. Um, but there's one exception. I do like playing and watching tennis. And, and if you don't know anything about tennis, for the purposes of the story, all you really got to know is the ball has to stay inside the court, inside the lines. If it goes over the lines, you lose the point. Okay? That's it. You guys now know how to play tennis. Okay, now some of you may have heard of Andy Roddick. There's a picture coming up behind him. He's the last male American champion. He won the U.S. Open in 2003, and that propelled him to the number one ranking. Okay? A couple of years later, he was playing a tournament in Italy, and he was deep into the tournament. I think he was like in the quarterfinals or something. And he was playing a guy by the name of Verdasco of Spain. So, so Roddick wins the first set. 
He gets up in the second set and he has three match points and that just means he's got to win any of the next three points and he wins the match and moves on in the tournament. So Ferdasco then double faults and that, he's serving, he double faults, that just means his last ball landed outside the lines. Roddick wins the match, the, the crowd jumps up and starts cheering, the umpire says, game, set, match, Roddick, Verdasco walks to the net ready to shake hands and Roddick hasn't moved. Instead, he walks over to where that ball landed to examine where the mark that it made. And, and amidst the cheering, he looks at the mark, he turns around to the umpire, and he says, this ball was good. It did not land out. we got to replay the point. And uh, the umpire did not agree. But Roddick was so insistent that he went back to the ready position, ready to replay the point. And, of course, Verdasco is not going to complain about that. So the umpire relents, and they replay the point. They restart the, the match. They don't restart it, but they resume the match. And I, I bet you know where I'm going with this. So, so Roddick lost that match point, the replayed point. He lost the next two points. He lost that set, he lost the next set, and he lost the match. Later on in the post-match interview, the reporters were like, dude, you won this match. Why on earth were you pushing for this? And Roddick said, I don't think I did anything extraordinary. I was just calling the lines. I was playing tennis. Roddick's decision to do the right thing, it cost him. It cost him a whole lot of ranking points. It cost him tens of thousands of dollars of prize money. But by choosing to do the right thing, despite those costs, Roddick became a witness for the game of tennis. It was all over the news. If you were watching the tennis back then, but it was all over the news. And really, he became a, a witness for the sportsmanship in general. Just like Roddick in that day on that match, every single day, you and I face decisions that when choosing the right path might lead to suffering. Every day. Do do I go along with the crowd or or do I stand up for what's right? Do, Do I gossip right along with my coworkers knowing that that's not what God has called me to do? Or, or, or maybe I, I so badly want to fit in that I'm going to start watching this TV show that everybody is watching, knowing that there might be some questionable parts to it. And, and listen, suffering from those choices can take all kinds of forms. Okay, so maybe folks in this room can't fully identify with the woes of a millionaire tennis player. Okay, maybe. But on the other end, here in America, we can't really relate to suffering from torture and death for our faith either, at least not yet. But but listen to how the people in Peter's writing to, listen to how they suffered. This is all coming right from his letter, how they suffered. In chapter 2, they suffered from accusations, from ignorant talk. In chapter 3, they suffered from slander. In chapter 4, they suffered from insults. They were being socially ridiculed, judged, and excluded. And and as we sit here this morning, that hits a little closer to home, right? Especially in our culture, we can relate to that kind of suffering. So as we think about that, here are two questions for you to ask yourself. First of all, am I zealous for doing good despite the cost? Is my desire to honor Christ so overwhelming that it doesn't matter what the cost is and that I, it erases my fear of suffering or am I driven more by my fear of man? And if I do suffer as a result, do I see it as an active opportunity to witness? 
One of, one of the primary purposes in our suffering is the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, now what, what Peter's going to say here, though, is it's not just that we take those opportunities. It's, it's how we do it. It's how we witness that really drives effectiveness. So our next point is this. My witness is effective when clothed in humility. Let's pick back up in verse 15. So Peter says, be ready to give a defense of your hope, yet, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, so right here, Peter's given us a picture, a perfect picture of what it looks like to be an effective witness, how we witness in those conversations when we suffer and so let's just walk through it. First, he says to witness with gentleness. So, so in this context, what's happening is they're being slandered against. And to be slandered against, to be slandered against, it just means that someone or a group of people are saying something very negative about you to you or to others that just isn't true. And there's all kinds of reasons why that might be, but when we hear that other people are saying very negative things about us, man, it's, we'd like to think that words don't hurt us. We, we like to say that, but the truth is, is they can, and they can hurt a lot, and they can make us angry. And sometimes when we confront the person, we're, we're so overwhelmed with the desire to vindicate ourselves to set the record right, that we come out guns a-blazing, talking more out of pain and hurt and anger. And that doesn't make for an effective witness, right? But when I believe, when I see that there is a purpose in suffering, I can respond with gentleness. Um, it's the Lord who vindicates. It's the Lord who convicts, not me. I'm, just, I'm called to be patient and humble, and the way in which I respond to my attackers, that attitude should bring the Lord joy. And let me be really clear about this. I'm not saying don't speak the truth, right, church? Speak the truth. Set the record straight. But do it with a purpose. Do it covered in love, covered with grace. Do it with a soft touch. Do it with gentleness. So witness with gentleness. Next, he says to witness with respect. We've got to see that if they're non-believing accusers, we've got to see that they are equally loved by God as we are and that they are lost without Jesus. That means not talking down to them. It, not, it means not having this holier-than-you attitude. It means not judging them, holding them to a biblical standard that they know nothing about. Witnessing to someone with respect, it just means, listen, I'm, I'm going to genuinely listen to you and listen to your journey. I'm going to love you knowing and remembering how I was listened to, how I was loved when I was lost. So we witness with respect and gentleness. Next, it says we witness with a good conscience. So, so I just had some windows installed last year, and they look awesome. They're nice and clean, and the purpose of windows is to let the light in. But I have to keep it clean, right? If I don't keep it clean, then over the years, they get kind of gunked up, and it's harder for the light to get in, kind of like this picture up here. It gets harder for the light to get in. And, and, and that's kind of like what a good conscience is. It's kind of like that window. It lets the light of God's truth into my life, but I got to keep it clean. That means I have to be continually sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit within me, and I have to react. I have to do what the Spirit's asking me to do. 
And I have to live a life free of ongoing and unconfessed sin. Put another way, witnessing with a good conscience means I'm walking the talk before I ever get to those witnessing conversations. I'm living a consistent, authentic life before the Lord, and that gives me more boldness. I like the way uh, Plato, he's a Greek philosopher, I think he's Greek, um, I, I like the way he said this. He said, when men speak ill of you, when they slander you, when men speak ill of you, live so that no one will believe them. Live a consistent life before the Lord. And finally, he says, witness with a purpose. Verse 16 says our purpose is to put to shame those who revile and slander us. Okay, and that's a really weird way to say this in our culture today, right? We go, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to shame them. So when I respond to them, I'm supposed to embarrass them, put them in their place, right? I'm supposed to make them ashamed. I don't think that's what... Peter means. In this context, he's talking about shame being a good thing. Here's what I mean by that. Listen, the world likes to paint a picture of what Christians are like, right? The world wants to believe that Christians are exclusive. They're they're hypocritical. They're judgmental. And we know that that's not what the gospel is at all. And when we respond to our accusers, those who are watching, when we respond with gentleness, with respect, backed up by a consistent life before the Lord, it completely falsifies their view of what a Christian is. The purpose of our response is to shame them into seeing that Christianity is not what they thought it was, and by the power of the Spirit to see their eyes open to who Jesus is. That is our overall mission. So last year, if you, a lot of you guys have been here for a while. Last year, we spent an entire year studying the book of Acts, right? It was an awesome year. The book of Acts is the story of, of, uh, 12, of how the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, grew a, a group of 12 men to this movement called the church that is still going, right? In the midst of a whole bunch of opposition and, and uh, uh, persecution. And God used a guy by the name of Paul to really grow the church in that period. Paul is such an awesome example of what it means to be a humble witness in the midst of suffering. There's all kinds of examples we could pull from God's word that we can point to Paul and, and learn from this. Let me just give you one example. In Acts chapter 21, Paul's returning to Jerusalem from one of his missionary journeys. Okay, He's been out spreading the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's coming back with Um, He's got multiple reasons, but the biggest reason is to share the good news with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He's coming back to say, look at what the Lord is doing. The churches are being planted. Lives are being changed. The movement is growing. Let us celebrate um, how God is moving. But instead, Paul gets ambushed by a group of Jews that were upset that Paul was teaching strict obedience to the law was necessary for salvation or was, I'm sorry, was not necessary for salvation. He's right, right? Good works don't get us into heaven. He's right. But these strict Jews had a major problem with that. And they were so upset with this, listen to this, they found him in the temple. They physically dragged him out of the temple, falsely accused accused him of heresy, started beating him with an intent to kill him. 
And they would have succeeded if Roman soldiers hadn't have shown up at the right time. But even when those soldiers showed up, it didn't get that much better. Man, they put him in chains and they were taking him off to prison. And it says that the violence of the crowd was so bad that the soldiers had to carry him away from the crowd. Take a second and put yourself in Paul's situation. What would you be thinking? I know what I would be thinking because there's a reason why I am not Paul. Are you kidding me? I just went and spent my, a huge part of my life sharing the gospel, and I'm coming back to celebrate and say, look at all the ways God is growing this church. And then you're going to sit here and beat me and accuse me of something that isn't even true? Prove to me what I've done wrong. I'd be telling Jesus, I am, I'm done with this. I'm shaking the dust off my feet. But do you want to know what Paul was thinking? What an awesome opportunity to witness. That is always being prepared. He asks the soldiers for an opportunity to speak and, and listen to how he addresses the crowd. He starts with gentleness. He speaks to the crowd and says, brothers and fathers. These are people that just moments ago were beating him. And he says, brothers and fathers. He speaks to them with respect. When he starts speaking, he speaks in their native language, Hebrew. He could have speak, spoken in the more common language, Greek, but he decides to speak in Hebrew. And when he does, it says the crowd immediately quietens because they're, he's connecting with them. He's trying to reach them. He's not trying to alienate them. He's trying to say, I see you. I'm part of you. I identify with you. I'm right there with you. And so they quieten. And then he speaks with a good conscience. When he speaks, where does he go? He shares his testimony. And, and listen, he's not afraid to talk about where he was before Jesus intervened. He lives a consistent and authentic life. He's not hiding from his past. He, in fact, his past glorifies the Lord. And his mission is not to defend himself. It's to explain the gospel that is available to his listeners. His goal is to shame the lost and see them come to know Christ. It was, it was through Paul's balance of speaking the truth, covered in grace in the midst of suffering, that grew the church like a blaze. And Peter, Paul knew that he was nothing without Christ. So his, his primary purpose was not to defend himself, but to see Christ be glorified and to share Christ. So as, as we look at Paul's example, if we listen to Peter's words, here's a question for us this morning. Is my passion for the mission so consuming that it is more important to see others know the one true God than my own self-vindication? Where's my passion? It's not just that we witness. It's how we witness that matters. Still, suffering for doing good is difficult. It takes a whole lot of intentionality in these moments. And I know that there are some examples in this room that are going through some real moments of suffering. Maybe, maybe you hear me talk about the suffering from Little League and you're like, really? Kids and youth in high school and middle school, I have kids in that age now. And listen, I got to tell you, the pressures that you guys face to fit in is so much stronger than what I had to deal with. 
And even, even as adults, man, we feel that pressure to fit in. Or maybe this morning, maybe a choice that you're doing to be zealous for what is good is leading to some challenged and broken relationships. Um, maybe with a spouse, maybe with your parents, maybe with a child. Peter knows that his words of exhortation are going to be challenging to hear. Peter, you want me to feel blessed in the midst of suffering? You want me to see it as opportunity? He knows that. And so he's going to go into a whole section here to give us examples in the Bible to follow, to encourage us. Let's keep reading in verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So our last point this morning is to see this. My witness is effective because Christ does his work through me. Peter says, listen, I know this is going to be hard to follow, but you want an example of being a humble witness in the midst of suffering? Look at Jesus. Jesus suffered in every possible way. He was socially judged. He was an outcast. He was mocked, accused, ignored. Physically, he was beaten, tortured, and eventually killed. But all along the way, in light of that suffering, he boldly and gently proclaimed why he had come. And, and Jesus was God. At any point in time, he could have stopped the suffering and obliterated his accusers. He had the power to do that, so why didn't he? Because there was a God-ordained purpose in his suffering. Just like what Peter says to us, we have a God-ordained purpose in our suffering. Jesus' purpose, Peter says, was that he might bring us to God. And man, I, I love this picture. I've been stuck on this phrase for a while. I love this idea of the gospel. There's so much love in that phrase. Jesus was righteous, completely without sin. We were completely covered in sin and we needed rescue. And, and out of his great love for us, Jesus went to the cross willingly to pay that penalty and his death gave us opportunity to be restored to God. He gave us a way to be brought to God. The purpose of Jesus' suffering, he was the ultimate witness for God, right? And so Peter says, listen, if considering all the ways that Jesus suffered and he willingly did it because God had a purpose, then surely we can, right? And then in verses 19 and 20, I first want you to see that he's going to give us another example of being a humble witness in the midst of suffering in the life of Noah. But it takes us a few minutes to get there. These couple of verses, I learned, are some of the most difficult, some of the most debated scriptures in all the Bible. I was very excited by this. 
And there's a lot of respected scholars that just disagree on how to interpret this. I wish I could spend a lot of time up here and go through all the perspectives and all the pros and cons. I cannot. I want you to eat lunch today. But here's one thing I do want you to know. Here's what I want you to be encouraged by. We should not be intimidated by verses like this. The Lord desires us to know his word. And through prayer and through patience and through the power of the spirit, we can. And so, so with humility, let me just propose to you, let me show you what I believe these verses are telling us. First of all, let's go back to the end of verse 18. Here Peter reminds us that Jesus physically died on the cross, but after death it says he was made alive in the spirit. So, so Jesus in his spiritual form has always existed, right? Even back in Genesis he was there. He's here now. Jesus has always existed in spiritual form. And then um, in the New Testament, he became a man. He lived a sinless life. And then when he died in the flesh, death was conquered. And he was immediately returned to his fully glorified and eternal spiritual state. And it was while in this spiritual state, our text says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey in the days of Noah. This is the hardest part, so stay with me. In this one phrase, Peter's talking about two different time periods, what happened in the past and what's happening now. This took me a little while to get there because you guys know I'm a math guy and math solves everything. And it took me a while to figure out that it's a grammar thing that solves this. I would have never thought that that was the answer. So Peter talks about first what happened in the past. He says, formally, in the days of the flood, back in Genesis, Noah preached to those around him of the coming flood, saying, um, repent, turn back to God to be saved. And, And listen, through whose power did Noah preach? Peter says it was through Jesus in his spiritual state back then. Jesus was the one that was preaching through Noah. And that shouldn't really surprise us, right? Earlier in the book of Peter, Peter says in chapter 1, he says that Jesus was also preaching through the prophets. Jesus has always been, and he has been powering people all along the way to share his message. But back then, in, the, in, the, in Noah's day, the people didn't listen right? It's only Noah and his family, eight people were saved in the ark. Everyone else perished in the flood, and they are now spirits in hell, in prison. Jesus did the preaching back then in Genesis. The spirits are now in hell, okay? Maybe, now listen, I definitely don't want to add or take away from Scripture at all, right? It's perfect. But maybe sometimes rephrasing it a little bit helps us understand it. So I I think it's up on the screen. Here's another way to think of those verses. Back in the days of Noah, Jesus preached through Noah to the spirits who are now in prison, okay? So, So why, let's go back to why is Peter even bringing this up? Let's remember the context that we have this morning. Peter's aiming to encourage his readers to be a witness for Christ in the midst of suffering. He says, exhibit A, look at Jesus. And then exhibit B, he says, let's look at Noah and his family. Think about all the similarities between Noah and his day and all the people in Peter that he's writing to and even to us this morning. It says, Noah and his family, they were a minority, surrounded by hostile unbelievers. So is Peter's audience. Noah was righteous in a wicked world, and Peter's reminding us to be the same, to be zealous for doing good. 
And as a result of being righteous, Noah suffered as an outcast, but he still boldly witnessed to those around him because he knew judgment was coming. Just like today. That's why we witness. And God delivered Noah as promised, just like he will deliver us as promised. Amen? To be promised deliverance is awesome. And we know it's coming, so it should embolden us to be a witness. But here's one more thing that should give us confidence in witnessing, and this is my favorite part. The prophets had Jesus' power speaking through them. Noah had Jesus' power speaking through him. If we are believers in Christ, then we have Jesus' power speaking through us. Micah just said this a minute ago in the Great Commission, what our church is founded on in Matthew 28. Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And in that power of Jesus, he goes on by saying, go therefore and make disciples. We can witness, we can make disciples because we have the power of Christ. And, and how do we know we have the power of Christ? How do we know that? Well, Peter says it right here in verse 21. He says, just like Noah being saved in the ark was proof that God's power was on him, our evidence of God's power in us is baptism. Okay, we got to be careful. This is another really tricky verse. Listen, Peter is not saying, he is not saying that the physical act of baptism saves you. And it's almost like he knew that's the way it was going to be read because he immediately caveats it, right? He says, listen, baptism itself doesn't remove dirt. It doesn't remove sin. It doesn't clean you. Rather, baptism is an external symbol of our appeal to God for good conscience. When we come to the Lord, when we first come to him with a repentant heart, that's what we're doing. We're appealing to him. Make us clean separate us from our sin, and, and we can be made clean through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes that possible. Okay, I think I said a minute ago that something was my favorite part, but this really is my favorite part. Peter then concludes in verse 22, my favorite verse of the whole morning. He says, Jesus is victorious. He's already won. It's finished. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and is all-powerful over everything. He's over kings. He's over queens. He's over presidents. He's over governors. He's over Nero. He's over demons and Satan. He's over everything. So church, be encouraged. Be emboldened to share your faith because Christ has won. In the first three centuries of the church, like Peter's writing to, he said every, Christ, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to their faith at the cost of their life. We don't really struggle with that right now. In America, we kind of live in this bubble of safety right now. I mean, we already covered there's lots of ways we suffer. But listen, there may be times, no, there will be times ahead of us where we will suffer more. In Matthew 24, Jesus warns us that in the end, we will be hated by all the nations on account of him. Later, even in 1 Peter, Peter tells us not to be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us as if it was something strange. When we choose to do good and we suffer as a result, we, we, um, Peter gives us encouragement for those times. He says, Christ suffered and won. 
Noah suffered and was saved. And if we are sealed for eternity in Christ by our evidence of baptism, we can rely on his power in the midst of that suffering to be a witness to others. So once again, how I witness determines the effectiveness of my witness. Our highest purpose in this life, in this church we call Harvest, is to glorify the Lord and fulfill the Great Commission. And if and if every, every one of us has a life-changing conversion into a life of faith in Christ, we should be fully aligned with that mission. Amen? And we can take great hope in knowing that the Lord will use everything for his glory. Um, As we close, let me just share this one quote with you that I found from John Piper that just summarized it perfectly for me, and I loved it, and I'm just going to read it over you. It's going to be up on the screen. This is from Mr. Piper. He says, someone might ask, why would anyone become a Christian if what you could offer them was that things in this world would probably go worse for them and that their lives would be at risk? The answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable. The biggest human needs are how to have our sins forgiven and overcome our separation from God and live forever with happiness in his presence instead of living forever in misery and hell. That's 10,000 times more important than living long on the earth and being comfortable for a zillionth percentage of your existence. So Harvest, let's go forward. Let's live our lives for him alone, no matter the consequences, and let us see everything as an opportunity to witness. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your word that you make it accessible to us, that you are showing us who you are in your word. And Lord, we know that there are times when it is difficult to suffer But Lord, we know and we thank you that you've given us your power. You've given us examples to follow in the Bible. And so Lord, may it encourage us. And Lord, we pray that we would put away our fear, put away our fear of suffering, that we would honor you above everything else. That that would be our mission and that we, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see in those times of suffering that there is opportunity to bring you glory to share with others the truth that lives in our hearts, the truth that Christ died for us and rescued us. And Lord, we thank you for that. We pray this morning that we go forward, that you would open our eyes to see those opportunities, that we would be on mission for you, and that would be our all-consuming passion. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.